everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative, storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, with you, as always, Brian Bowling and my partner in crime from a distance, Brandon Odo. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, uh, Dr. Artie Sarwal. She is a professor of neurology at Wake Forest in North Carolina. Um, and even more than that, she is the section chief for neurocritical care and the medical director of the neuro ICU down there and uh, is heavily, heavily involved in something that I think uh, a lot of people will find interesting. And for me, kind of brings two of my um, favorite interests together, which is neurocritical care and point-of-care ultrasound. So we're going to talk with her today about the way she uses ultrasound in the neuro ICU, which may be surprising for some of you who do neuro and those of you who do ultrasound, uh, because it's not an area that we normally think of using ultrasound a lot. So we're going to talk a little bit about some stuff that's out there that you may have heard of and some new stuff that she is doing um, research and clinical trials with uh, sort of advancing this field. So we're going to talk a lot about all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, Brian and Brandon, thank you for having me over. All right, so let's start with a um, a case. Uh, it's actually in the cardiac ICU. You get a call from the, your your um, cardiac critical care colleagues uh, because they have a problem with a patient and they need your expertise. Um, this is a forty seven year old gentleman who was placed emergently on VA ECMO um, the other day following cardiac arrest. Everything was going well. Uh, he's, you know, I guess as well as you can expect for somebody who's emergently placed on VA ECMO. But uh, now we're two days into his ECMO and he is no longer awake and following commands. Normally they say we would send him to the CT scanner and scan him, but you can imagine that it is not optimal to try and transport this guy who is on ECMO and the vent and, uh, you know, lots of drips and everything else all the way down to the CT scanner. And so they want to know, can you come up and just sort of use your expertise to tell them what the CT scanner would show uh, without them having to go to CT scan? So that's a pretty tall order. But, um, you know, what do you think? You, can you do it? Um, well, that's actually a great case to discuss the applications of neuro ultrasound in the um, non-neuro ICU settings, Brian. And I would definitely take up the challenge um, with the caveat that we don't have definite evaluation and prognostication algorithms that can truly um, evaluate this patient's neurological status replacing a CT scan, but ultrasound definitely can help you phenotype this patient on the extremes. So let me give an example of how I will evaluate this patient. The first thing I'm looking for in this patient, obviously, is a surrogate for malignant cerebral edema, either because of ischemia or because of hemorrhage related to anticoagulation. Does this patient have malignant cerebral edema that will make me step back and think about the prognosis on a big scale? The things I can do is in is an ocular ultrasound. So with optic nerve uh, sheath being one of the very commonly investigated surrogates, people um, can easily add two different assessments on ocular ultrasound. One is the pupillary assessments themselves, and second is the uh, fundoscopic correlate of ultrasound, which is papilledema assessment. So in this particular patient, hopefully the pupil assessment can be done by traditional ways. Um, but if for some reason the edema of the face or any pupillary 
or any eyelid abnormalities kept me from looking at the pupils. That's something I can use ocular ultrasound for and even do quantitative pupillometry. The second thing I can do is look at the posterior chamber. And if I see lamina cribrosa um, protruding into the vitreous chamber, just like you see on a fundoscope, that is your ocular ultrasound uh, version of papal edema. And that will tell you that the patient has high ICPs. Optic nerve sheath diameter obviously has been investigated as well, provided you have a standardized protocol, a very wide optic nerve sheath, especially if you had serial findings on this patient where a normal optic nerve sheath diameter on day one has now progressed to 20, 50, 100% increase, can be a very useful marker that this patient has increased cerebral edema. Now, you can also do cranial ultrasound B mode, which is currently investigational. We have recently published the topography of B-mode ultrasound on um, cranial imaging. And you can use the temporal windows to look for focal lesions on one side that could be causing midline shift. So midline shift assessment on ultrasound can be done exactly like you do on a CT scan using midline structures like the pineal gland or the septum pellucidum or the third ventricle. And seeing midline shift um, can tell you that there's a focal lesion on one side, which could be ischemia, which could be a hemorrhagic stroke. Both of these are not uncommon neurological complications in this high-risk population. The third thing that is also investigational is a very acute hemorrhagic stroke can appear as a hyperechoic signal on the B-mode itself. So there is a possibility that we may be able to diagnose a big hemorrhage on um, this patient that can give us a suspicion that we need to go for a CT scan um, and there's a focal lesion sitting here. And lastly, people are investigating the actual transcranial Doppler velocities. And these velocities, spectral waveforms are very different in VA ECMO compared to normal patients because the circuit is non-pulsatile. But serial studies, um, if done in these patients showing normal symmetric values, um, if you now see asymmetric values or significantly low values on one side compared to the other, can also be a surrogate that there's a big focal lesion that could correlate with patients' neurological decline. So these are quite a few ways in which I will investigate these patients. Most of these need to be validated on a larger scale, but have shown decent correlations with CT scan and helping triage which phenotype does this patient belong to. Okay, well, so that man, that's a lot. I, you know, I do neurocritical care, and I didn't even know about a lot of those things. Let's let's go back and sort of look at some of these for folks out there who don't do neuro, um, and maybe have heard of the optic nerve sheath, right? Because I think that's out there. Um, explain to us, really. So, first of all, why? How does that work? Why, how, why is why does the optic nerve have anything to do with the ICP, and and how does measuring it tell me if the ICP is elevated or not? That's a great question, Brian. So anytime we have increased pressure in the cranial compartment, that pressure is easily transmitted to the cerebrospinal fluid spaces within the cranium. And to our benefit, the CSF spaces inside the cranium, which is the ventricular space or the subarachnoid space, communicates with the subarachnoid space around the optic nerve as it goes through the orbit. And you can visualize the optic nerve through fundoscopy or through ultrasound. And you can visualize this optic nerve sheath space, which is the subarachnoid space around the optic nerve. So anytime there is increased CSF pressure inside the cranium, because it is in continuation with the optic nerve sheath around the nerve in the ocular space, 
uh, that pressure gets transmitted and that transmission of the pressure widens the optic nerve sheath and this widening of the sheath becomes a surrogate for increased intracranial pressure. We typically visualize the optic nerve sheath in the long axis where you want to see the optic nerve as a big long segment and measuring the optic nerve sheath diameter in the transverse axis about three millimeters behind the lamina cribrosa has been shown to be a pretty significant correlate with high sensitivity specificity for predicting increased ICP crises. The caveat are that because of anatomical variations and the um, standardization needed for getting a true long axis, you need to practice a good image acquisition protocol. And the second part is it's extremely important to use the landmark of three millimeters behind the lamina cribrosa as there can be variable um, uh, widening of the optic nerve sheath way far behind because of the way uh, the elasticity works. Okay. So uh, for people who are listening, um, ultrasound in general, right, is a very visual topic. So we're going to try to put some pictures up on the website and on our social media. Uh, so if you're following along, you can sort of see these things, but nuts and bolts, how do you, how do you go about doing this? Like what probe are you using? Where are you putting the probe? How are you orienting it, et cetera? So I'll typically use a linear probe or the vascular probe, which is a high frequency probe that will give you good resolution to look at the optic nerve about three to four centimeters behind the eyelid. You will typically put this probe on the transverse axis. So it's looking from ear to ear with the index marker on the probe on the same side as the index marker on the um, machine itself. It's extremely important to choose the orbital preset. This preset has a very low power, which you can see by two numbers seen on the screen called mechanical index and thermal index. For ocular ultrasonography, these two indices to, need to be extremely low to protect the eye from potentially harmful uh, effects of ultrasound. Once you've taken the ultrasound preset, you want to look through the transverse axis of the globe through the lens and the vitreous humor and adjust the depth so you can see a decent length, three to four centimeters of the optic nerve behind the globe. As you look at this optic nerve, you want to align the axis by moving the tail of the probe so that you're seeing a true long axis in which the center part of the hypoechoic long axis shows you the optic nerve and the two uh, sides or the margins of this optic nerve show you the sheath. You want to measure the diameter of this sheath from the most outer margins, which is called the external optic nerve sheath diameter. And the measurement of this transverse axis needs to be done three millimeters behind the lamina cribrosa. A small caveat here to remember is evolving literature has pointed out that the dura, which is the outermost margin of this sheath, can sometimes be visualized as a wide structure itself. And there is an internal optic nerve sheath diameter that takes inner margin of these dura into account, an outer optic nerve sheath diameter that takes the outer margins of the dura into account. If you're able to visualize that with the resolution, the internal optic nerve sheath diameter that ignores the outer margin of the dura has shown high correlations with increased ICP. All right, and so now you're, you're talking increased ICP, not a measurement, right? This is not something you can calculate and say the ICP is 30 or 22 or whatever. Now, there have been attempts to predict ICP numbers using optic nerve sheath diameter. The challenge behind that is the 
wide range of wide optic nerve sheath in normal population really keep you from translating this to a scalable numeric number. Uh, what helps more is serial assessments. So today, if your patient had a, a optic nerve sheath diameter of 3.4, and tomorrow and the day after, uh, you come back and measure with the same acquisition protocol, and it's 5.3 and now 6.2, that is a very high predictive value that the patient's ICP is increasing. But um, it gives you high correlation to a high ICP, but does not translate to a true number itself. Gotcha. Okay. So so it will tell you that it's elevated, but not specifically a number. Okay. Um, you mentioned uh, papilledema. So um, I know this is something that I was taught in school, and I've never really been good with an ophthalmoscope. Um, but, you know, we talk about looking at the at the iris and or looking at the eye and seeing the raised optic disc in the back. Um, but you can do this with ultrasound as well. Yes. And this can be extremely helpful when a patient's anatomy keeps you from having access to the pupils for traditional pen light assessment. So a patient with glabular edema after craniotomy, patient with any ocular injury where the globe is not compromised, uh, but the eyelid doesn't let you uh, open the eye for pupillary access, you can use the same way I described the optic nerve sheath diameter measurements, where you take a linear probe and you place it very lightly on the closed eyelid and um, look through the vitreous um, to look at the transverse axis. And you can see the iris uh, contracting and relaxing, especially if you use a pen light on the opposite eye. So you use the consensual light reflex to look at those pupillary movements. And if you adjust the tail of the probe to get the long axis of the eyelid, you can actually catch the whole cross-section of the circular pupil and see the movements in response to light to check for the pupillary light reflex. People have also added M-mode to it to get quantitative pupillometry, and this can be an extremely helpful surrogate for pupillary constriction, which is a surrogate for uncle herniation in patients at risk of acute brain injury, especially if you don't have access to the patient's pupils for traditional pen light assessment. So this, this could be really, I hadn't actually never thought of the patient that you can't open their eyelids, but this could be extremely helpful in trauma patients um, who have a lot of injuries to their face and you can't, uh, either from swelling or other, other mechanism, you can't get access to the eye. You know, I, I think a lot of people who are used to getting CAT scans serially on patients like this would, would be very interested in using this because that can be such a burden to transport these patients. But it must really come down to the test characteristics. I mean, you've said that uh, maybe you can do a assessment, compare it to their CT scan at one point and then trend it. And that's great. But if you have a patient where maybe you didn't have that data, is there a cutoff of the optic nerve sheath diameter that is associated with an elevated ICP with, with pretty good test characteristics? Or do you really need to have a baseline? Or can you maybe choose different cutoffs to get a different sensitivity or specificity? Brandon, that's a great question. And this is unfortunately one of the pitfalls of using optic nerve sheath diameter itself. Uh, for papilledema, uh, you can use this as a screening tool very easily that you're going to assume that the patient did not have papilledema at baseline. And as the first de novo test, if you see gross papilledema, that tells you that some intracranial pathology has happened, contributing to increased intracranial pressure. And you can triage the patient for imaging based on that finding. The challenge with optic nerve sheath diameter is twofold. Number one, if you don't have baseline measurements when the patient was normal, 
that absolute cutoff has been the holy grail of research where people are trying to investigate these cutoffs. Based on the studies, you will see cutoffs of anywhere from 5.5 to 7 millimeters. The two caveats there to remember are one, in pediatric population, these cutoffs depend upon the head circumference. An adjustment to head circumference has been suggested as a good confounder to look for this cutoff. There are lots of normal patients out there. My own optic nerve sheath is like six point something millimeters. So having that single absolute value may not be that helpful as we want it to be, especially if you don't have baseline values. The other caveat that keeps us from using these absolute cutoffs is the chronicity of the um, uh, ICP increase. If the ICP increases slowly over hours, over days, over, over weeks, the optic nerve sheath diameter is most like, more likely to be elevated. If you have a very sudden increase in ICP, say a patient with ischemic stroke had a sudden hemorrhagic conversion, in that case, a sudden increase in ICP can shut off the CSF from going into the optic nerve sheath because of severe edema at the level of the basal cistern. And these are the cases where you can see an absolutely normal optic nerve sheath diameter in the normal range, 3.54 millimeters, with the patient having a very malignant ICP crisis. So these are the two caveats that you have to remember when using absolute cutoffs and why they have not translated to be good surrogates for ICP crises. So whenever possible, get a baseline of the patient as early as possible. And the serial assessments can really help you triage this patient for neuroimaging rather than absolute cutoffs. I see. So if you really want one thing to hang your hat on, if you do see that ultrasonographic papilledema, that's a pretty good marker. But the nerve sheath diameter itself, maybe a little more like the IVC, you know, if it's very large or very small, then it's, you know, useful. Otherwise, much more helpful to have some kind of a trend. I think you're right on point there. The other thing, just like everything else we monitor in the ICU, a combination of findings and finding extremes can be very helpful. So if I see papilledema and I see a very wide optic nerve sheath diameter in a patient who has a neurological decline, and now I'm seeing patterns of midline shift on the B-mode ultrasound, that's three monitoring modalities telling me the patient has an ICP crisis and is more likely to be predictive of patient's true physiological state rather than one isolated finding itself. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the midline shifting because that's the next thing I wanted to talk about. You had mentioned that using B mode to assess for midline shifting. So this is new to me. I'm I'm not familiar with this, uh, and I suspect a lot of our listeners aren't either. So walk me through how you're doing this and why this works and how how you can assess midline shift with this uh, ultrasound. So Brian, this um, audience probably knows that when a patient has a focal lesion on one side of the brain, it typically causes the herniation or shift of parenchymal structures to the opposite side of the brain. And midline shift has been the most traditional way we look at cerebral edema uh, in any acute brain injury. And typically midline shift on a CT scan is measured at the level of the septum pellucidum. Um, it can be measured at the level of the third ventricle, or you can look at the pineal gland. With a B-mode ultrasound, you are using a low-frequency probe, the echo probe, um, on the transcranial Doppler preset, and you're placing this probe at the temp temple of the bone uh, to get temporal windows, just like you would do transcranial Dopplers. And you try to find uh, the basal cistern level at the level of the midbrain, and you will see the butterfly, which is the midbrain, uh, on the B-mode. 
you adjust the depth to make sure that you have the opposite skull visible. And this gives you a cross section or axial section of the brain, just like a CT scan. You find the midline structure that is of your interest, depending on the patient's pathology. Say you find the septum pellucidum. You measure the depth of the septum pellucidum from the skin on the same side. And then you repeat the measurements um, from the septum pellucidum to the opposite skull using the same temporal window. The two things here to remember is, one, the axial section produced on one side of the brain, the angle of that axial section cannot be reproduced on the other side as reliably as a CT scan. So you cannot um, extrapolate the two midline shift measurements on both sides on the same plane. So there will be definite angle. Although the correlations of these midline shift measurements have very high numbers compared to a CT scan, the, the, uh, the technicality to remember is to use the same window to take the ipsilateral and the contralateral differences between the midline structure in the skin and midline structure in the opposite skull. The second caveat is serial measurements help, absolutes do not. On the CT scan, you have complete control over the axis at which the axial section is taken and you can make it completely horizontal by reformatting the images. With ultrasound, because of the technicalities of getting the temporal windows, you can't adjust this angle. So a midline shift of two millimeters today may mean that the patient has no midline shift just because of the way you're measuring it. So if serial measurements are done exactly in the same technique, you can really get a good surrogate for cerebral edema assessment. The second caveat to remember is pick the midline structure in relation to the patient's anatomy. So if the patient has a frontal lobe pathology, pick up septum pellucidum as a midline structure. If you use pineal gland as the midline structure, it may not reveal you reveal any benefit, beneficial findings. The same way, if you have a medial temporal pathology, having third ventricle as the midline structure could be very useful, while the septum pellucidum may not show any midline shifts. So having a midline anatomy that is in relation to the patient's context of intracranial pathology and using these measurements on a serial basis is the key to using midline shift assessments using B-mode cranial ultrasound. So I assume that the same caveats to apply when we talk about transcranial Doppler, for the, which we'll get into here in a second for those of you listeners who aren't familiar with that as well, but that, that not everybody's going to have amenable windows to this, right? That is correct. About 85 to 90% of the population does have temporal windows, at least on one side of the brain, which you can use. And the presence of windows decreases with age. Uh, your skull gets thicker, not just figuratively speaking. In general, males have less windows compared to females, and certain ethnicities have um, thicker skulls as well, which makes it harder to get temporal windows. But if you do get windows, you can get very useful information from B-mode cranial ultrasound and transcranial Doppler. And is this something, do we talk about all these serial assessments, this is something that you're doing yourself, like true focus, right, at the bedside, not... You're, you're not having the ultrasound techs come up from radiology to do this, right? So Brian, I fortunately happen to be in center where we do have very useful presence of the techs, at least during the daytime. So whenever possible, the emergency of the situation uh, warrants whether I do it myself or bring the sonographer in. If it's a semi-urgent patient that I'm very interested in very high quality measurements over days, and I'm anticipating that I will be doing their doppers on a daily basis, I do try to utilize my sonographers whenever possible. 
but uh, at off times or if I really need a decision right now to send the patient to the CT scan or the OR for decompression, I probably will do them myself or uh, some of my uh, colleagues and nurse practitioners and peers in the uh, unit are now also trained to some, do some of these measurements. And I'm trying to train as many people as possible because at the end of the day, a test is only good as the applicability in the times of emergency. So I'm really hoping that um, uh, more and more people who use POCUS for systemic causes can extend those POCUS skills to brain as well. Because at the end of the day, brain is the end target of all resuscitation. And combining the brain parameters for um, uh, brain injury markers can be extremely helpful, whether the patient is in a neuro ICU or another critical care unit. Now, I imagine measuring midline shift is only useful when that is the location and direction of their edema, right? If you're herniating in some other direction or in the posterior fossa or something, then this would not be helpful. So Brandon, that depends upon the patient's pathology. If the patient's pathology is global cerebral edema, uh, you can have measures um, on transcranial Doppler, which is a blood flow measure uh, that can still be extremely useful in figuring out patients' intracranial pressure. So transcranial Dopplers um, represent the cerebral perfusion. And in a patient with high ICPs that is affecting patient CPP, you see the normal transcranial Doppler waveforms, which are low resistance waveforms, transform into high resistance waveforms, where diastolic component of the waveform gets um, uh, reduced to the point of coming to the baseline. And in extremely high ICP crises, where the ICP exceeds your diastolic systemic blood pressure, but is still below your systemic. Um, systolic blood pressure, you can see oscillating waveforms. Positive blood flow during the systole is going backwards during diastole. And that oscillating waveform on transcranial Doppler is a very sensitive and specific finding that your ICP is causing limited perfusion. And if this pattern persists and the underlying injury is unsalvageable, that's a hallmark finding that patient is going to progress to cerebral circulatory arrest. So even in a downward herniation patient, you can use transcranial Doppler for non-invasive ICP surrogates. So, you, so you're talking about looking at direction of flow and pulsatility of flow as a marker for increasing pressure with the transcranial Doppler. Is that right? Yes. People use this both qualitatively on serial assessments by just looking at the waveforms. You can follow the pulsatility index which is the difference between the peak and the end diastolic divided by the mean flow velocity. But you can also calculate non-invasive ICPs using transcranial Doppler velocity parameters. And there are different formulas that are published that I can share some references in the notes below. Okay, that's great. Um, I know we're, I'm more familiar with using TCDs to assess for cerebral vasospasm, uh, like with patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, but this is interesting to see that, I, I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? Because we also use transcranial Doppler um, as a um, ancillary test for brain death declaration a lot of times, um, looking at the same thing, that reversal of flow. Um, now, you had mentioned, too, using this in this particular patient, this ECMO patient, right? We're, or we're concerned that, you know, because these guys are on a lot of anticoagulation, could this be a hemorrhage? Um, and how exactly are you using ultrasound to detect hemorrhage specifically? Um, that's a great question, Brian. Uh, we recently concluded a study which we are calling the Cupid study, cranial ultrasound for point of care intracranial hemorrhage detection, in which we are using B-mode ultrasound to look for hyperechoic signals in the brain, uh, which are um, typically produced by hemorrhagic stroke. And fortunately, the sensitivity and specificity of B-mode ultrasound 
if you have temporal windows in detecting large fresh bleeds is more than 95% uh, on our point of care machines that we use in the ICU. And a fresh hemorrhagic stroke typically appears as a very hyperechoic shadow. There is significant amount of learning curve in understanding the artifacts that you can see on the B-mode ultrasound, so you don't mistake that to be a hemorrhagic stroke. But B-mode can detect acute changes in parenchymal pathology. And in ECMO patients, that can be a very useful marker for a big bleed that could have happened as a result of anticoagulation. You combine that with measures of midline shift assessment, whether you pick um, pineal gland, third ventricle, or septum pellucidum. And thirdly, you combine that with measures of cerebral perfusion pressure, because you also want to see whether this is affecting the patient's ICP indirectly or not. So I use a combination of ocular ultrasound, B-mode cranial ultrasound for parenchymal assessment as well as midline shift assessment and transcranial Doppler to look at CPPs when I'm holistically looking at this patient's pathology that is contributing to neurological decline. So all, all of these, you, you keep kind of mentioning learning curve and getting people trained and stuff like this. I assume there is a fairly steep learning curve with this. Um, it feels like it is more, more difficult than sort of the average you know, learning to do basic echo or a fast exam or something like that. Um, do you have a feel for how long it takes to get proficient at these? Like if I wanted to, to start doing this in my neuro ICU this week, um, you know, how many of these am I going to have to do before I feel comfortable saying this is what I believe is happening versus I, I don't know, I see some stuff. Um, that's a great question, Brian. And um, uh, in the ICU settings, there's a learning curve for most of the stuff that we deal with, uh, just like echo and lung uh, both transcranial Dopplers and ocular ultrasound have their own learning curve. Uh, there are some published guidelines on um, how much scans um, will it take for an average person to gain competency. And the number ranges from anywhere from 50 to 100, depending on who you talk to. But one caveat there to remember is that at this point, point of care transcranial ultrasound is a very evolving field. And as more and more people get trained in cerebrovascular hemodynamics and cerebrovascular anatomy itself, this learning curve is bound to get less steep, just like we did with ECHO. You know, 10 years ago, as a neurointensive care physician, I could not imagine looking at the heart four chambers or assessing RV assessment in an ARDS patient in the neuro ICU. And now, thanks to more widespread knowledge, more widespread understanding of the implications of this finding, there is a... Um, there is a framework that is available for me to learn point of care echo that has changed the learning curve, say, from 150 studies to about 30 to 50 studies. I'm pretty positive that over the next five to 10 years, as more and more critical care intensivists um, endorse neuro ultrasound as a part of point of care ultrasound, this learning curve will get better. And it also behests on people like me. Um, Dr. Kiara Raba um, in Europe is a very big champion of this as well, where we need um, to find clinical algorithms and educational frameworks that give you a low-hanging fruit of something you can learn to translate on bedside, like midline shift assessment in an ECMO patient, papilledema in ocular ultrasound. When you start slow and build skills on a foundation, that learning curve is easy to tackle. But I'm very excited that more and more intensive care physicians, anesthesiologists, and emergency medicine doctors are endorsing neuroultrasound. And as we create more educational materials, learning materials, and clinical applications, this learning curve steep uh, will become less steep over time. I'm very excited to see that happening. Of the investigations that we've talked about today, 
which would you say have enough evidentiary basis that they're ready for prime time? Which of these things can people go out and start using tomorrow? It sounds like the ocular studies, optic nerve sheath, looking at pupils and papilledema, perhaps already. Uh, but what about some of these other things like assessing midline shift or parenchymal bleeding and some of these TCD measurements using spectral Doppler? Where are those on this spectrum of transition to practice? So, Brandon, um, you write about the ocular ultrasound um, being a very useful marker that is um, already has enough literature supporting its use in uh, as a non-invasive ICP surrogate. I would consider B-mode cranial ultrasound still as an investigatory step, which needs two things. Uh, it needs ultrasound vendors to create some presets that are very specific to cranial B-mode ultrasound. All the current presets are optimized towards transcranial Doppler, not at the B-mode imaging of the brain itself. And secondly, we need to create more educational framework around teaching people the topography of brain on B-mode ultrasound. There are lots of normal artifacts produced by uh, the skull itself, um, um, which need to be taught on a more widespread basis before we can do studies on use of B-mode for intracranial pathology. The one modality I would highly encourage everybody to learn, which has very established high-grade evidence behind it, is the use of a transcranial Doppler uh, for bilateral MCA velocities to look for perfusion-limiting ICP crises. So when you have a patient that you're suspecting high ICPs or you want to rule out a perfusion-limiting high ICP crisis as the cause of the neurological decline, showing normal waveforms with normal diastole, mean flow velocities, and PIs can be a very useful marker as compared to a patient that shows flow-limiting diastolic flow, oscillating flow, which can be a very sensitive specific marker to say that this patient is suffering from a perfusion-limiting ICP crisis. And if the underlying injury is salvageable, this can be a very good trigger for escalating intervention, whether it's medical or um, surgical. So using point-of-care transcranial Doppler for anterior circulation would be one modality I would encourage everybody to add to their toolbox of point-of-care ultrasound. And the idea there, you tell me if I am summarizing this fairly, is that normal circulation in the cerebral vessels should show flow that has a high compliance. There's not a lot of pressure there, so you have relatively low systolic peaks and then relatively high comparatively diastolic pressures with a, a slow runoff. But as pressure starts to build in that fixed cranial vault, then the compliance starts to get worse, which means those systolic pressures start to spike higher and those diastolic pressures start to drop off. And being able to assess this in a, a continuous, you know, frequent way may give us a target for our resuscitations and managing things like hemodynamics, measures like hyperosmolar therapies or surgical decompression or whatever, in a way that we just didn't have that data otherwise, other than, you know, intermittently with CT scans or invasive tools like an EVD or a bolt. But this kind of adds an ultrasound modality to track the perfusion to the brain, you know, very analogous to the things we're already doing, tracking the function of the heart and the lungs and the kidneys, uh, and it just kind of loops the brain into that. Is that a fair description? That that's I could not have said it better. Um, the only thing I would say different is in the brain, because of the enclosed cranium, 
It's not the compliance, it's the resistance that is manifested in exactly what you said. All right, fair enough. All right, so lots of good stuff. Um, lots of interesting things on the on the horizon. I think a lot of great applications, especially for non-neuro people, right? Because I think that's some of the, one of the things that I've noticed being in neurocritical care is that a lot of non-neuro people feel like, uh, you know, innovations and things that happen in the neuro ICU don't apply to me. The neuro ICU is a black box and it's a weird place and let's keep it all there. But I think just like we've learned over the years that uh, non-cardiac ICU people need to really understand function of the heart, um, I think non-neuro people need to understand the function of the brain. And I think hopefully using this ECMO case um, as an example, right, there's plenty of good opportunities where you need neurological assessment and for whatever reason can't get one. Um, and and now it sounds like lots of potential things on the horizon for using ultrasound to do it at the bedside when normal or tr more traditional mod modalities are not uh, available. Exactly, Brian. Um, I continue to say brain is the ultimate target of all resuscitation. And there is every reason for a um, intensive care physician who's managing a patient's ARDS, cardiogenic shock, liver disease, um, or any other critical illness needs to pay attention to perfusion of the brain as much they're paying attention to rest of the systemic monitoring and ultrasound, especially point of care ultrasound, whether it's a B mode, Doppler, or ocular ultrasound can be an extremely useful tool in, in your um, toolbox. Uh, to add to that brain monitoring component to make sure that you optimize your therapies to the brain. And we have recently published um, expert consensus guidelines through European Society of Intensive Care Medicine that very much targeted the use of brain ultrasound amongst other modalities by the journal Intensive Care Physician. And we put together a consensus both from the perspective of the clinical indications, but as well as a call for more research into increasing education for general intensive care physicians about neuro ultrasound. And I'd love for you guys to review this reference and use this in your practice. Yeah, you know, it's not always easy to tell when you're living through history and people who train relatively recently probably have a hard time imagining a world without point of care ultrasound. For applications like echocardiography to help us manage hemodynamics, just because it gives us so much information readily, immediately at the bedside, targeted, that we wouldn't have otherwise except in very inconvenient and slow and intermittent uh, methods. And yet, this is what we're doing currently to manage the brain. So I, I think there's a lot of parallels here, and it's hard to look at these applications and say that in you know a number of years when it's penetrated more and we've all learned it better, we're not going to be doing this exactly the same way that we would throw a probe on the chest and look at the heart or at the lungs or whatever. I, I love that you said that, Brandon. And I'm hoping and praying for the day very soon when neuropocus becomes a part of body focus and this becomes part of our sixth and seventh vital sign just to monitor a patient on a regular basis. And all these non-invasive paradigms uh, provide our patients in austere environments, resource-limited environments, or even in research um, resource-rich environments like ECMO, a very easy, reproducible, serial way to optimize our therapies to target brain perfusion. So thank you for saying that, Brandon. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about POCUS and one of the benefits being, uh, we you know, portability. And uh, another one is l limiting exposure to ionizing radiation. And I think these 
these are great examples, like you just said, of, you know, in the neuro ICU, we, we serially CT scan people a lot. And that's a lot of radiation that we would like to avoid if we can. Um, a lot of places don't have access to a neuro, uh, a high quality neuro ICU, right? Because they're in, like you said, a resource limited environment. They're in a remote location. Even just a smaller hospital within the United States um, where they just don't have the resources. Uh, and I think this potentially brings that to them in a way that uh, that previous modalities maybe don't. So I, yeah, I'm excited too. I think this is um, this is really interesting stuff. Brandon, do you have anything else to add in on our discussion here before we kind of wrap it up? No, you know, a lot of this clearly will benefit from visuals and maybe so, some references for the more cutting edge stuff. So I encourage everyone to go to the show notes. Uh, for some material that I hope Artie will oblige us with providing. But, you know, it's it's a lot of things you're probably not doing, but like a lot of focus, I think, is amenable to just starting to think about how you can integrate into your practice with, you know, a smart, safe, rational uh, combination of good resources, expert supervision, and some learning and experimenting on your own. So I, I really encourage everyone to just get out there and start at least thinking and, and maybe using some of this. Yeah. Uh, Artie, before we go, do you have any other resources or things you want to recommend? Are there? I don't imagine there's any training courses out there yet for this stuff, like there is for Echo, or am I wrong? I think there are evolving courses for uh, point-of-care ultrasound. Uh, most of the critical care ultrasound courses have now endorsed neuroultrasound as a part of uh, full body critical care ultrasound. Society of Critical Care Medicine now has neuroultrasound as a part of their critical care ultrasound course series. So does American Thoracic Society. Uh, European Society of Intensive Care Medicine for our colleagues across the pond has also fully endorsed neuroultrasound as a part of critical care ultrasound, which makes me extremely happy. There are dedicated courses for transcranial Doppler that are available. Um, on the West Coast, Cedar Sinai has some courses, University of Washington, Seattle. Harborview Medical Center has some courses. On the East Coast, uh, we do a course um, which focuses on carotid and transcranial Doppler ultrasound. But most of this is focused on a full cerebral hemodynamic assessment, both for outpatient and inpatient. But we are hoping that with increasing endorsement of neurofocus as a part of critical care focus, you will see some more courses come up uh, and educational materials. And a podcast like this can be an extremely helpful spark for things um, um, that can help people uh, find learning opportunities. But I would definitely encourage everybody to check out the consensus guidelines published by ESICM. That will give you both the technical and the clinical aspects of brain focus. Um, look out for more publications in neurocritical care. And um, if you have a critical care ultrasound course that does not have a neuroultrasound component, uh, please reach out. I'll be happy to connect you to local champions for Neurofocus uh, or help them get some educational materials to incorporate in their course. Great. All right. Well, um, I hope this has been helpful for folks. Like Brandon said, um, this is a pretty visual topic in general. And so we're going to try to put a bunch of visuals up on the website and on our social media and stuff. So look for that there. And uh, otherwise, we hope this has been helpful to people. It, even if you're not going to be doing this if you don't have a direct um, direct application in your personal practice. Hopefully it's exciting to hear about new changes coming along and new things developing. Um, so thanks already for being with us and we will see you guys next time.
Yeah, and just a reminder, this is just the opinions of the three of us, not of our respective employers, and is just meant as general medical education, not as any specific medical advice. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah.